Welcome to Head to Toe, a series of interviews with medical professionals, illuminating healthcare's history while shedding a light on its future. <clears throat> Hello, good morning. Welcome to Head to Toe. I'm Marie McMillan. I'm here with Jean Masonic, a retired drug safety officer. She initially got her nursing degree and worked for as a nurse for a while and then transitioned into the field of pharmaceutical research. She has over 20 years of experience. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, I understand you started nursing school in 1990 at the age of 44. What made you start a career in nursing at that time? Well, I had actually always wanted to be a nurse when I was young, but my mother was very much against it. Uh, I got out of high school in 1964, which was the very early days of the feminist movement, and she was like, women don't have to be nurses and teachers and secretaries anymore. You can be, you know, something bigger and better, and you can be anything you want. And I'm kind of like, yeah, except I want to be a nurse, but she didn't, she didn't go for that. So I got a college degree in sociology and did a number of other things. And, um, it was really only when I got into my forties that I was kind of brave enough and, and had become an assertive enough person to just say, no, this is what I really always wanted to do. And I'm going to do it. Fabulous. Um, and then you worked for a little while in outpatient, uh, outpatient surgery. surgery. Right. right, right. Okay. About four years. What made you change careers from bedside care to drug safety, and what kept you in that field for so long? It's kind of a long question, but <laughs> That's just okay. like go from outpatient surgery to I'm going to go research drugs now. Like, <laughs> tell me how that happened. Yeah, that's kind of weird, <laughs> actually. I was working at a comprehensive cancer center in Berkeley, California. We had a little two-room operating suite where we did mostly breast biopsies and lumbar epidurals, which is pain management for cancer patients. And because we were a separate center, the cancer center was a separate center from the main hospital, I was working per diem, and I would have a lot of days when I wouldn't have any work. And I went to the HR department, and I said, you know, this is this is great, and I like working here, but I need some hours. And so they said, well, how would you like to go work in our clinical research department? I said, hey, you going to pay me by the hour? Great, sure, I'll go do that. And I started working in clinical data gathering, basically, because they were doing a lot of cancer drug studies at this cancer center. And I discovered that I really liked it. And finally, they shut down our surgery center. And when that happened, I thought, well, you know, this might be an interesting time to take a little detour. And I like doing the research. And I'll try doing some of that. And actually, a friend of mine at my church back in California was the vice president of regulatory affairs at the Bayer Biologics Division in Berkeley. And she called me up one day and she said, I know you're between jobs. And I know you're a nurse. So you know something about medicine. And we have a short seven-week project. We need a submission to the FDA proofread. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, sure. So I went and did that for seven weeks. And at the end of the seven weeks, one of the other gals in regulatory came up to me and said, I've been watching you and you seem to be catching on to this stuff pretty fast. And I know you're a nurse. Would you like to work in our drug safety department? And I had uttered the immortal words, what's drug safety? Because I'd never heard of it. I don't think anybody ever goes to nursing school saying, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a drug safety associate. And once she explained it to me, I thought, this is what I was meant to do. It kind of, it kind of tied all my skills together. And um, 
I read a lot of mystery novels, and drug safety work is kind of like medical detective work. And I just, I once I got into it, I was like, this is this is the thing for me. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, myself kind of included, after emailing with you now, I'm a little bit more familiar. Can you briefly describe what the duties of a drug safety officer are? Okay. When a drug is first put out there into human beings, either in clinical trials or actually even after it gets marketed, they may start taking the drug and then have some new sign or symptom happen to them. And it may cross their mind that, gee, I wonder if this has something to do with taking this new drug. Now, in clinical trials, they're required to report these things. In post-marketing, they might report it. They might report it to their physician. They might report it directly to the drug company. FDA actually has a mechanism for reporting it directly to FDA. Um, The healthcare professional who's treating the patient may report it to the drug company. In any case, when the drug company gets a report, they have to investigate it and try to figure out whether, in fact, this event had something to do with taking the drug or not. And in order to figure that out, you have to find out, well, was the patient taking the drug properly? What other medical conditions does the patient have? What other medications is the patient There's taking? so many variables. Oh, yeah. And, and so all those variables have to get collected and written up in a report, which is called a MedWatch report. And then it, two things happen to that report. It gets sent to FDA eventually, and it also gets reviewed in-house. And, you know, you try to make a determination as to whether what happened is actually a side effect of the drug or not. And then you said you started as a drug safety associate. And right, then that's you, the entry-level position. Okay, and then you ended up being like knowing more than everybody else there, obviously. <laughs> And becoming the queen of everything. Well, yes, sort of becoming the queen. I wouldn't say knowing more than anybody <laughs> else. But, uh, yeah, I eventually got to the point where I was the director of drug safety mm-hmm. at two different small companies in um, California. I was I was sort of a big fish in a smaller pond. I, I never wanted to work for big pharma. And, and um, so I liked working in companies that were working in rare diseases, very underserved diseases. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about which diseases those were and what kind of drugs you researched for them? Alrighty then. So uh, the first company I worked in that worked in a really rare disease, well, that's not true because Bayer did a a recombinant product for hemophilia, which is a fairly rare disease. But Bayer is not a tiny little company by any means. Um, So I went to a company in Marin County that worked in a disease called mucopolysaccharoidosis, which for obvious reasons is known as MPS. (laughs) (laughs) Mucopolysaccharoidosis. I'm going to add that to my voice warm-up. There you go. (laughs) It has most of the letters of the alphabet in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there are six different forms of it, and basically it's it's a glucose metabolism defect where you can't break down glucose properly in your system. Mm -hmm. When you can't break it down properly, you get these incomplete byproducts that just kind of get stored in your cells, Mm -hmm. and it swells the cells. Mm -hmm. And what it does to people is really pretty horrible, but anything from uh, swollen and misshapen joints poor facial you can you we always used to say you can tell an mps kid by looking at them because they get a very strange facial uh configuration Mm. uh they go deaf they go blind Mm. they get 
hernias and have organ failure. And without treatment, people generally don't live past their teens. The company that I worked for figured out how to make human enzymes to break down glucose in non-human cells. And that's about all I can tell you about it because I'm not a microbiologist. I don't really understand how it works either, but that's what they did. They managed to get non-human cells to manufacture human enzymes. Interesting. So genetic engineering is weird and wonderful. And then I worked for a while for a company that worked in urea cycle disorders, which is another metabolism disorder, but instead of glucose metabolism, it's protein metabolism. You can't properly break down protein into essential amino acids, which are what your body's trying to do with protein. Mm -hmm. The bad news is if you don't break down proteins properly, one of the byproducts of protein metabolism is ammonia. Mm. Now, in you and me, it stops being ammonia really quickly. It goes on to being something else. Mm -hmm. But in in, uh, urea cycle disorder patients... It stays ammonia, and it circulates in your bloodstream. Then you end up with liver failure. No. Well, it's bad for your liver, to be sure, but it's worse for your brain cells. Mm. It really kills brain cells. Mm. And so patients with UCD, untreated patients with UCD, if they have a severe form, they generally don't even live long enough to get out of the hospital Mm -hmm. because they have a a severe crisis and they mm-hmm. never even go home from getting born but if they have a slightly milder case they end up with what looks like mental retardation mm-hmm. from the from too much ammonia in their system that's a very rare disease there's only about 7000 patients in the US so i was really i was really proud to be working for a company that was doing something about that mm-hmm. and we we did in fact develop an ammonia scavenger that basically goes into your bloodstream gloms onto the ammonia and sends it out in your urine and Mm -hmm. as long as you're taking it properly you have no ill effects from having too much ammonia in your system which Mm -hmm. is pretty great being a nurse a bedside nurse like when i clock in i know what most bedside nurses do they're going to get report they're going to do their assessment blah 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 when i hear nurse working at drug safety you walk into your job office and then you do I don't even know how your day would go like can you give me just a a little bit about what what a typical day in drug safety would be like sure so high technology hasn't reached a lot of doctor's offices so most reports still come in on the fax machine so the first thing I would have to do when I walked into the morning was get the get the faxes off the fax Mm -hmm. and then I would have to sit down with the initial report and say okay what did they tell me what do I not yet know? And I would have to come up with a whole list of questions that I needed to ask the reporter of okay. this event because the, the initial report you get is always pretty bare bones. What I always liked to do was um, ask questions by email because you have absolute documentation for what you said and what the other person said in response and all that. And and in in a highly FDA-regulated situation, documentation is everything. You mm-hmm. have to be able to document. I like to do it by email. That's not always possible. So, you know, I would spend a lot of time, honestly, chasing down information, sending emails to doctor's offices. And then once you get everything, writing it up into these MedWatch reports. One of the things you asked me about when we were emailing was, how have things changed? Yeah. over the number of years that I was in the business. And 
when I first became a drug safety associate in 1998, companies pretty much just gathered information, wrote up reports, and sent them into FDA. FDA puts all this information into a big database, and they do a lot of analysis on the database. The companies themselves didn't usually do too much in-depth analysis. Then there was a big sort of, I would call it a pharmaceutical crisis in 2004. There was a drug on the market that was marketed by Merck called Biox. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very popular pain reliever, mostly for arthritis and, and other kind of chronic pain. And it came out in two, it was licensed in 1999. And it came out in 2004 that there was a higher risk of heart attack and stroke if you were taking this drug. And Merck, it was eventually announced as a voluntary recall, but I would, I would hesitate to use the word entirely uh, voluntary uh, about what happened. But the, <laughs> the upshot of it was Vioxx was withdrawn from the market. Mm. And at that point, there was a lot of investigation about what information did Merck have that they could have known earlier that this problem existed had they actually really looked carefully at the data that they had. And so after that, I, when I was teaching drug safety back in California, I used to talk about the pre-Viox era and the post-Viox era. Mm, okay. Because after Viox, the FDA put a lot more pressure on companies to do a lot more analysis of okay. their data and and really put pressure on the companies to be the first to say this means something and we need to do something about it. Now, you know, I'm not blowing my own horn, but that was always kind of my attitude because I was like, what happened to Merck after this whole debacle? They were sued up one side mm -hmm. and down the other and they mm -hmm. lost a lot of money paying a lot of claims. And I always felt like the company, in its own best interest, needed to know what, you know, really understand what was going on out there. Number one, because we didn't want to get sued and have a lot of liability issues. But number two, honestly, and, you know, I know there's a lot of image out there right now about the, the big, bad, greedy drug industry. Mm -hmm. But every company I've ever worked for, including the biologicals division of Bayer, which is the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world, has honestly had patient safety at heart. You know, they really don't want to hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. And so it behooves the company to do a lot of analysis to figure out, you know, is something really going on mm -hmm. here? And the, the ultimate result of any kind of analysis could be a change in the label, usually. Are you going to put another item on the label that says, by the way, watch out for this mm -hmm. possible side effect? I mean, there's more drastic outcomes like black box warnings and, sure. and drug withdrawals and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But the usual outcome of any kind of meeting within the company about, you know, what's going on is, do we need to make a label change? Drug safety departments got a new name, which I never adopted personally. But companies started calling them pharmacovigilance departments. Pharmacovigilance. Yes. That sounds a lot more, has uh, a lot more gravitas. It does. Than just drug safety. Right. And it, it contains the word vigilance, mm -hmm. which means, boy, we are really keeping good track of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was a little highfalutin and I like oh. drug safety. That's right. Well, you're just... Me, but... <laughs> You're old school. You're like, yeah. I'm just going to keep doing it. ways than one. If somebody yeah. changed, like, registered nurse to something else, I'd probably be like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> companies did shift to to hiring more people and hiring more physicians and biostatisticians and people like that to say, okay, we got this report. Now, instead of sending it off to FDA for them to decide what it means, we're going to sit around and decide what it means. Oh, I see. So would you say that companies interact more with regulatory bodies now? No. No. You would say that less. They take care Um, of it more themselves. I don't think the amount of interaction has changed, but I think the... The interaction on the part of the pharmaceutical companies has changed from reactive to proactive. So if anybody's going to start the conversation, it's more likely to be the company now than the FDA. I see. I see. On the topic of change, uh, regarding ethics, technology, regulatory bodies, and everything else, um, you said you've seen a lot like the pre-Viox era and the post-Viox era. Have you seen any general trends over time? Or like you were saying, it, di- it did seem to be reactive and now it is more proactive. Right. What, what other trends would you say you've seen over time? Well, I can tell you about one of my big pet peeves. Sure. Which is direct-to-patient advertising. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the worst things that ever happened, personally. Explain a little bit for those of us out there who don't know what directed patient advertising is. All right. It used to be against the law to advertise prescription drugs. You could advertise something that you could buy over the counter in the drugstore. That was fine. Mm -hmm. But if it needed a prescription, you couldn't advertise it. And then all of a sudden, one day, you know, like it used to be illegal for lawyers to advertise their services and then one day someone said oh no they should be able to advertise their services and now you can't turn on the television without seeing Mm -hmm. you know were you harmed by mesothelioma call my law office and we'll get you some money and so the regulations changed and companies were allowed to advertise prescription drugs Mm -hmm. in things like ladies magazines Mm -hmm. and radio and on television Mm -hmm. and you know especially now with with cable companies who have targeted advertising i live in a retirement community every other commercial on my tv is for some prescription drug Mm. and the reason that i think that's a very bad thing is that it and it but it's exactly what it's intended to do is that it creates a market in the patient population the patient will say well, I wonder why my doctor hasn't given me this marvelous new drug for my condition that I'm hearing all about on mm-hmm. the TV. And yeah. the people on the TV look so happy right. and so cured and so wonderful. So the patient goes marching into the doctor's office and says, hey, doc, I want some of that whatever. Yeah. So let's use Vioxx. Because frankly, Vioxx was one of the first drugs that was heavily, heavily, heavily advertised on television. And so patients would march into the doctor's office and say, hey, you know, I've got this terrible mm-hmm. arthritis and this Vioxx sounds great. How about it? Especially if their current drug regimen isn't working or whatever right. else is or, like. You know, just if they think it's the latest and greatest and, you know, yeah, yeah my current drug is working fine. But, hey, this stuff looks fabulous. Product so of our I society. It, yeah. you know, Always it, searching for what's better. That's it's, right. It's consumerism yeah. to the max, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And doctors are people true and they don't necessarily want to look that patient in the eye and say i don't think that drug's going to be very good for you because Mm -hmm. they want to make that patients happy and they want to Mm -hmm. 
when you look at the whole Viox debacle, as I like to call it, Viox could still be on the market and it could still be helping a lot of people. If there had been stricter controls over who got Viox mm. and who didn't get Viox. But because the direct-to-patient advertising just showed happy arthritis patients tripping through the flowers mm. in the field, they gave it to a lot of people. And mm. it could, I think personally that it could actually have stayed on the market if the prescribing was restricted. But once you create a big market like that, nobody wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Um and I just, I think it's it's taken, I hesitate to say the decision-making out of the hands of the doctors, but it's... Influenced. Well, it's created in patients a militancy mm. for certain drugs. I see. That yeah. might not exist, especially if, as you say, they're on drug X already, and it's working just fine. Mm-hmm. The doctor is going to think to himself, well, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. You know, the patient's doing fine. I'm not going to put him on another drug. Mm-hmm. There there are very strict limits to what we know about a drug when it comes out of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's been tested in a, a relatively small subset of the people who are eventually going to take it. Personally, I would much rather take a drug after it's been out on the market for four or five years. And you've had a much bigger pool of people sort of being the guinea pigs for me mm-hmm. to see if it causes any problem. Sure. And then if it's still doing well, I'm like, okay, fine, I'll take it now. You know, um, but direct-to-patient advertising sort of skips that step. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to see it go away. Yeah. Regarding technology, I work with uh, young, new doctors mm-hmm. frequently. And, you know, I think it, it is well ingrained in their systems to really look everything up, especially when they're new and they don't know a lot about drugs. And if, if I've learned anything about medicine, especially critical care medicine, is that data runs everything. Data motivates and affects change. And I think with in the age of the Internet, it's been a good thing that, that the data that, like you're saying, like all these research companies is readily available to the prescribing bodies. So mm-hmm. I think that technology has been a good thing for medicine and as far as information sharing mm-hmm. goes. Um as far as well, well, the other ahead. thing about technology yeah. is you have a much more informed patient population. That too. Because many more people now if the doctor says let's say you mm-hmm. your child has mucopolysaccharidosis, mm-hmm. the parents going to go right home and google. Right mucopolysaccharidosis and after they and google figure out how to spell it right they will find out a lot about mucopolysaccharidosis Mm -hmm. so the next time the patient goes in to see that pediatrician they're going to be armed with a lot of questions Mm -hmm. a lot of concerns Mm -hmm. sometimes having access to all that data for the patients breeds a certain level of hysteria because they read about all the worst case scenarios of this disease and all you know they get on a new drug and they read about all the things that could potentially go wrong mm-hmm. and it, i'm i'm a little concerned about the fear level that sometimes gets engendered in patients mm-hmm. but mostly i think it's a really good thing because it helps people talk to their healthcare professionals a little more on the same level you know cuz they walk in there knowing what they want to ask knowing what mm-hmm. they need to know i like what you said about um, people working in uh, big pharma and the research departments is that 
you felt proud to really affect change for these people with these very rare diseases. And you felt on the whole, people really had come from a good place that they wanted to make good changes in Absolutely. people's lives. Absolutely. And that, you know, it all starts with research. It mm -hmm. really, it really does. Um, I, I like that you say that because working on the direct patient care end, you know, a lot of times we look at big pharma and we think of the good old days of these reps come in with their briefcases and their uh, big catered lunches and they hand out <laughs> samples and stuff. And I've gone are those days, I, I feel like. Yeah, those days are gone and I think there's a good reason for it. There are some interesting movies out there. I'm trying to think of the name of one of them, but it's... Um... You could probably Google it with subject matter, but it's about a guy who was a Viagra rep in the early days of Viagra. Oh, my gosh. And some of the coercion that went on to try to get doctors to prescribe it. and For 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 hypertension when it, it's no, initial? No, no, no. It never did get licensed for hypertension. Because I remember in clinical trials, side note, I'm obsessed with this. I want to write a musical called Viagra the Musical. <laughs> I think that would be, a. I think that would be amazing. B. Yes. It's it's funny. I, it it was first it was first market or in trials. It was it was in clinical trials as an antihypertensive. Right, That's and then right. they found this amazing side effects. <laughs> well, yeah. So this is another fun thing about being in drug safety. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's something that people are complaining about as what we call an adverse event until you prove whether it's a side effect or not. Right. All right. The right terminology is adverse event. Sure. So people are complaining about these adverse events and then the company goes, Oh, it's doing that. Well, maybe that's what we should have it. do. Uh, okay. My favorite example of this is Rogaine. Okay. Which was also initially tested as an antihypertensive. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, ma'am. And patients were complaining that, they were getting mustaches and thick chest hair and all sorts of other, you know, yeah. things that they regarded as terrible, awful side effects. Uh -huh. And then somebody at the company, I forget who markets Rogaine, but somebody at the company said, hair growing. Uh, okay. <laughs> some bald <laughs> dude sitting at his desk was like, I'm going to take this home and rub it on my head and just yeah, see what happens. Exactly. So the thing is, if we just, if we just use it topically, okay. not systemically, right. We can use it to grow hair. And thus, dun, dun, a dun, huge moneymaker was born called Rogaine. <laughs> but yes. So Viagra. Um, anyway, yeah, this movie <laughs> is about some of the stuff that, you know, things that they used to do like companies used to be able to do like pay doctors bonuses for prescribing a certain number of, of prescriptions mm -hmm. for a given drug, which, you know, horrifies me personally. Sure. But it used to go on all the time. Mm -hmm. And... I think especially because of some of the things that came to light around the marketing of Viagra, the FDA has cracked down much, much more on what you can do interacting between the company and uh, physicians and other healthcare providers who are, who are going to be prescribing these drugs. And, you know, anything that smacks the teeniest tiny bit is a bribe or coercion or mm -hmm. an inducement it's gone, you know, which I think is a good thing, actually. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I, I still a current misconception, I think, by many is like, I'll even hear sometimes patients be like, well, that doctor is probably getting paid to prescribe this thing. And, I, and I th I'm glad that you said that, that, I, that that is largely not the case right. anymore in it's, 2017, at least. If it's the case at all, people can get in a lot of big trouble mm -hmm. for doing it. Uh, up to and including not being able to sell their drug anymore. So, I mean, there's some pretty stiff penalties 
for mm-hmm. doing it. So there is some morality in big pharma. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I and I stand by what I said a while ago, which is that I, every company I've worked in, from huge Bayer right on down, mm-hmm. the basic intent was to do good for the patients. Mm-hmm. And anybody who thinks that pharmaceutical companies do not have that good intent at mm-hmm. heart, I think need to rethink that. I, I, I feel like I should say a word about drug prices because... I, that is one of my questions. <laughs> I've heard that in the news lately, these gigantic hikes in in the prices of, of these. But yeah, what I want to hear your insights about okay, that. Okay, so let me talk about this. I, Please do. I do not think it's outside the realm of possibility that drug companies will raise prices just because they can. In general... People need to understand that prescription drugs, especially brand new ones, are very expensive because it costs a lot of money, a lot of money to develop a drug, to get it from the lab through the, the what we call in, in vitro testing in glass, where you just test it in cells, through animal testing, through three levels of human testing, costs for a mass market of drug multiple hundred millions of dollars to get that drug to the point where you can sell it. Mm -hmm. And it takes usually around 10 to 15 years to go through that whole process. So you've been spending a lot of money for a long time without even ever knowing if you're going to have a reward at the end of this process. Because I once heard a statistic, I don't know how accurate it is, but that only one in 10 drugs that starts out in the lab with some scientists saying, hey, I think I got something here. Mm-hmm. Only one in 10 of those drugs actually makes it to the marketplace. So not only are you paying for all of these hundreds of millions of dollars that you spent to develop the drug you're actually going to sell, but you're paying for all the money you spent for those other nine drugs that didn't make it into the marketplace. And the only way you managed to go through those 10 or 15 years was to have venture capital investors and probably eventually an IPO. So you got a bunch of investors out there lined up waiting to see a return on their investment. So when you put this drug on the market, you have a lot of pressure to charge a lot of money for it because you're paying back yourself for all this money you spent. You're paying back your investors and you're trying to accumulate some more money to go back in the lab and try to develop a new one. So that's why brand name, brand new pharmaceuticals are so expensive. And people say, well, but once it goes generic, I can get it for $3 a bottle. Well, that's because the only expense the generic manufacturer has is fit once it's on the market, he can go buy some and test it, figure out what it's made of, figure out how to make it himself and make it and sell it. Mm-hmm. That's the only expense he's got. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's going to be way less expensive. I think that's great. I think that's super. But it also means that a drug company has a rather short lifetime to make back all that money. Oh, I see. Because it goes generic so quickly. Yes. And you got to pay I, for the hundred millions of dollars it did to develop it in exactly. the first place. Exactly. You don't have a hundred years to make mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. that money back mm-hmm. because... Don't quote me because I'm not an attorney, but I think a patent <laughs> life is something like 17 years, something like that. I so let's say it took you. That up. <laughs> let, 
So by the time you get that drug to the market, you've already used up, let's say, 12 of your 17 years. So now you have five years, just five more years to get your money back before it goes generic. And there are some little tricks you can use to extend your patent life. Like now, I just noticed on TV the other day, they've done a new thing. They have they have single packs mm-hmm. of Viagra, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. On the go. <laughs> Put it in your briefcase. Decide to have a quickie in the middle of the day? Fine. <laughs> You've got a Viagra in your briefcase. Oh, there's you know? daily use now, too. Like for like Cialis, and there's some other ones that are like... Like, many women out there take birth control every day to not have babies. So now <laughs> there are men out there who take a little bit of something every day to have intercourse yes. successfully. Yes. But once... Um, Pfizer came up with these single packs for Viagra extends the patent life because now you have a new um, a new form in the pharmacy, right? Tricky. So there's there's, there's ways, ways to keep to these things going. So Viagra's been out there a long time and it hasn't gone generic yet. There there are ways. So yeah, you know when you ask me about the big bag drug companies, it's mm-hmm. a mixed bag. Yeah. So you've yeah. worked primarily in the United States. Oh yes. Oh yes. So looking at our system compared to other systems of healthcare um with our all of our regulatory bodies the fda and the fda is the only one that i know there's got to be a bunch more (laughs) actually for drugs it's the fda it's just the (laughs) fda okay so i I know our process like you were describing is cumbersome and Mm -hmm. long but there's a reason for it now Mm -hmm. i know there's other countries out there like mexico who don't have the fda they do have their own version version. but it's nowhere near as rigorous as right right um and this is perhaps more of a philosophical question do you think the way that we do it is the best way with the regulatory bodies or would you say that having the access to really good drugs without the necessary research like in mexico or somewhere else because some people will go to that because if they know there's a drug out there okay most governments have some form of regulation. Okay. Most governments take their lead from the FDA, the EMA, which is the European Medicines Agency, which is the uh, regulatory agency in the, um, in the European Union, and the COSESA, which is the, the uh, agency in Japan. Okay. When companies want to get their drugs approved, they generally go to those three places. The biggest difference in my experience between FDA and like both the EMEA and the Cachesa is that in Europe and in Japan, they're quicker to approve, but then they do very rigorous post-marketing scrutiny. Once you get a new drug in Japan, for instance, you're very likely when you go to the pharmacy to have to fill out a form about what has happened to you since you started taking this drug and you know are you having any symptoms and have you had any blood work and and have you been sick and you know all this kind of stuff and they very rigorously uh, accumulate that information and analyze it so they're looking at the post-marketing population like a great big clinical group and they're gathering a lot of clinical data about it in the United States, we're much more likely to test the heck out of it before we ever approve it. But then once we approve it, not be quite so vigilant. Honestly, I kind of don't know which is the best. Because we do do part post-marketing surveillance, and I've done a lot of post-marketing surveillance, but the, the estimate in the United States is that only one in 10 adverse event 
gets reported to the pharmaceutical company. And I think the percentage is probably much higher in Europe okay. and in Japan okay. for new drugs. Okay. And so maybe they're, much, they're, maybe they're more likely to know when something bad is going on once mm. it gets out into the general population. You're going to find out a lot about a drug once it gets out into the general population. So, you know, maybe it is a better system to do a lot of rigorous post-marketing testing. As opposed to no regulation at all, it sounds like. Oh, I, you know, you need we something. had those in the bad old days. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how many people know this, but there was no regulation at all of drugs until like 1920. No, I'm sorry, 1938. Mm. 1938. That was when they passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which actually said hey, maybe we should be paying attention to what kind of snake oil people are selling. Mm -hmm. Post-Prohibition era. (laughs) But all they had to do after 1938 was prove it was safe. They didn't have to prove it actually worked Mm. until 1961. All of a sudden, FDA said, oh, you actually have to prove that it works. That not only does it not hurt anybody, but it does what it says it's going to do. So... This whole business of looking at drugs and making sure they're, you know, proven safe and effective, which is now the big mantra of everybody, is very new in the grand scheme of history. Mm -hmm. But that was a big trigger to regulation. And then, you know, there's the famous um, case of the Tuskegee Institute trials where where people were actually um, allowed to go on with syphilis. And I think... You know, those two things really raise the awareness of the public that we, you know, caveat emptor, which is the buyer beware, is not a good concept for drugs, that we need to, we need to save people from themselves. So regulation on the whole is good. Well, I do think we, we have to save people from poisoning themselves. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a good thing. What do you imagine the pharmaceutical industry will be like in the future? Oh, Lord. I don't know. Having given you my big rap about drug prices, the one thing I hope is that there isn't so much pressure to keep drug prices down that it discourages the development of new drugs, mm-hmm. which I can I can see happening. I see. You know, if you're if you're prevented from recouping all of those research and development costs, you aren't going to put out all those research and development costs Mm -hmm. and I and I think that's a danger of course the other thing that people talk about all the time that I honestly don't know too much about is um tailored medicine tailored to your own genetic Mm -hmm. um makeup and that you know we are finding genes that like like there's several drugs out for breast cancer now where you only get this drug if you're positive for a certain gene Mm -hmm. and it's it's not going to help Mary over there with breast cancer who doesn't have this gene but if you have it it's going to help you mm-hmm. and and I think we're going to go more in that direction which is good because up until now medicine has been kind of one size fits all if it works for 3,000 people in a large clinical trial there's an assumption that it's going to work for everybody and anybody who's ever been sick knows that that isn't true you know we're all very unique machines mm-hmm. and we can't all be treated in the same way and so designer medicine i guess is what they're calling it now is is probably going to be a good thing 
sometimes researchers fall in love with their drugs and they really think that they have come up with the answer and they don't want to hear about it if it turns out that their drug is not the answer. <laughs> and when I, I worked for a company called Chiron, which doesn't exist anymore, we were working on a drug for something called disseminated intravascular coagulation. DIC, yep. Which you and I know about because yes. we're both nurses. I'm right. not sure how many people listening to this know what that is, but it's essentially a peripheral clotting problem. And we were testing it in sepsis patients. It doesn't, it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. Patients with sepsis, unfortunately, die a lot. Uh, the, the usual death rate from that at that point in history, which was back in the 90s, was 60%. And we were hoping, the goal of this study was to have our drug have only a 40% death rate. And it just, it just wasn't working out that way. The vice president who had developed this drug, she just would not let this puppy go. We closed down that clinical trial, and I left Chiron. And about two years later, I read in one of the journals that they had started another trial with this drug. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, just put the poor thing in the cemetery and have the yeah. funeral and move on. Right. You know? That's the nurse in you right there. <laughs> well, you know, it's also the practical person in me because... Mm -hmm. You know, I was talking about how drug prices have to recoup not only the costs of the drugs that make it to the market, but the costs of the drugs that don't. So if you keep beating a dead horse, somebody's going to have to pay the costs of beating that dead horse. And it's going to be the people who are buying one of the drugs that actually does make it to the market. Mm. So I have some questions from our listeners specifically. Uh, what made you decide it was time to retire? And what is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, what made me decide it was time to retire was I was 67 years old and I had some health problems. And um, it just was time already. But I had actually stayed at that company up to that ripe old age because this was the urea cycle disorder drug. And I had come into that company when it was in clinical studies and I wanted to get it through to the point of approval and then get it through the first year of post-marketing. And that was my, my big goal. So mm. I did that and then I was like, okay, it's time to hang it up. What's the best advice I ever got? Probably eat your vegetables, but I don't think that's quite what you have in mind. You know that the more the more and more I take care of sick people with chronic conditions and the way healthcare is going in this country, it's just a lot of uncertainty. So I think I think there is a bit of advice in take care of your body now. Yes. At age yes. 15, 19, yes. 25, yes. 30, 40, yes. take care of it now because it's the only one you're going to get. It's the only one the you're going to get. The man, to the contrary, it's the only one you're going to yeah, get. That's for sure. How have you been enjoying your retirement? I've been allowed to work in my church a lot more. Oh, great. That's That's been a very important thing for me. And Good. when I was working in drug safety, drug safety is a 24-7 job. And, you know, one of the things I always wanted to do was a lot more volunteer work in my church. And so... I'm having the opportunity to do that now. The other thing I'm having an opportunity to do because of where I live in beautiful downtown Portland, that's a plug, is I live... The rent prices are crazy, <laughs> but the lifestyle's worth it. Well, and that's why it's nice to be in a retirement community where the <laughs> retirement, where the rents are a little more... Fixed income. You know, sure. where, you, where you can do it. If you're in your 30s, call me. I have a whole rant about it, but... <laughs> 
But I live a very short bus ride away from the, what we call the, the Hatfield Hall and the Schnitz Auditor- Arlene Schnitzer Auditorium, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of wonderful music and dance and performance mm-hmm. art of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And I go to something down there maybe once every other week. Oh, that's so awesome. What's your advice for those of us out there who have long careers ahead? Really do what you enjoy doing. I mean, I fell so fortunate that I literally fell into a job that I didn't even know existed, that once I started doing it, I had the feeling that this is what I'm on this earth to do right now. This is, this is what all my skills are for. You know, it was hard and it took up a lot of hours and there were times when it was kind of frustrating. But at the end of the day, I always felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing and I really the basic task that I was doing every day, I really love doing. And if you can find something like that, do it. Thank you so much for My joining me today. Fun. Yeah, it's been great. Um, this was episode nine of Head to Toe. For your information, the Viagra movie mentioned was entitled Love and Other Drugs with Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway. And according to the FDA, a general drug patent life is 20 years from the time of initial application. Those are my show notes. Thank you to Gene Masonic for taking the time to educate us all about the drug industry. Thank you, listeners. As always, please look me up on Facebook. Check out my website, mariemacmillan.com, or email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com if you like the show and think you'd be interested in, in an interview. I'm always looking for more people to talk to. Um, also, if you have comments or feedback on the show, feel free to call and leave a voicemail on the podcast feedback line, which is 503-512-0185. That's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, take care.